This morning we're going to continue in this series of ours in the Gospel of John as we open up the book of John and we see what it would have to say to us and how it would encourage us and how it would reveal Jesus to us. And that's really what the heart of John is in writing this book. It's what our heart is in starting a church. It's, in, it's what preaching is all about. The Bible says, how will they believe unless they hear? How will your faith grow? How will you believe in Jesus unless you hear? And how will you hear unless someone preaches? So that's why we're here this morning to share and to preach the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. And our hope is that you would see Jesus a little bit more clearly every single week. That each week you'd get a little bit more of a picture of the fullness of Jesus, the fullness of God, the, the glory of God. As we said last week in our message, we have seen his glory, the glory of God, which is wrapped up in his grace and his truth, the goodness of who this, this person is called Jesus and what he came to do for us. So far in the book of John, we've covered chapter number one. And in chapter number one, we saw two main things about who Jesus is. And the first one is that he is the creator. That Jesus in the beginning was the word. That's how John starts his book. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word without him, nothing that is created was created. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. And then the second thing that we see is that he became flesh. He came to be with us. He, he came full of grace and truth and we were able to behold his glory. We were able to see him and, and experience him and, and see the fullness of his goodness. So we know that he's the creator that became man, that took on the form of man, full of grace and truth. And when you start to see that, when you see that in Jesus, when you understand that he is both the creator and that he be, then became flesh, all of the stories of Jesus begin to make sense. It's like you begin to piece together the puzzle. Otherwise, you could read the Bible almost like uh, it's just little random stories about things that Jesus has done. Have you, have you ever kind of found that? A lot of people struggle. They get lost in the Bible. They open it up and it's like, oh, there's this crazy story about when Jesus did this. And there's, a, there's another story about when Jesus did that. And if you don't see the whole picture, you could actually miss even John's intention in writing these things. I, I brought my, uh, my son's one puzzle this morning. He was very perturbed when he saw it in the car. He's like, what are you doing with my puzzle? But uh, I brought his puzzle here because what I realized is that if we don't see this, if we don't see the bigger picture, we end up reading the Bible like puzzle pieces. That you kind of, you open up the Bible, none of it is together. None of it makes sense. There's no clear picture. It's no big picture. And you, you kind of take out, you open up your Bible in the morning, you've decided that you will be reading uh, the Bible and you will be doing a, a daily devotion or whatever it might be. And uh, you take out a puzzle piece and you go, okay, well, this verse that I'm seeing today, my verse for the day is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You go, well, that's an incredible verse. I take that, I, I receive it. Man, so good, so good. You put that over there. I kind of, I think I know what that means. And so I just believe that and I stand on that. And then you pull out another piece the next day. And the piece the next day says, uh, you know, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You read the story about the Good Samaritan and you think to yourself, I need to be a Good Samaritan. 
and I need to, I need to do that. I need to look out for those that are hurting and, and I need to help them. So, so I've got that down. And then you might pull out one of the Psalms and you read in the Psalms about how the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want. And you're like, I take that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You take out another one that says, beloved, I hope that you would uh, be in health and prosper even as your soul's prosper. And you go, okay, that's also good. Then you pull out another one and it's like Zechariah 12. And you're like, I have no idea where this piece goes. I'm just going to put it back. I have no idea how that fits into the picture. And so that's kind of how you end up reading the Bible if you don't understand the fullness, the full picture of the gospel and of what Jesus came to do. Theologically, we call the gospel, we call Jesus the hermeneutical key. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of the Bible, how to do it accurately. And without this key, everything else that you see is, is, is subject to error because Jesus unlocks the Bible. When you see Jesus, when you understand the gospel, when you understand what he has done, the whole Bible makes sense. And I know because I preached it for years without it making complete sense. I didn't see the whole picture. I preached puzzle piece by puzzle piece for years and years. And now all I wanna preach is the whole picture. Not specifically about the Ninja Turtles, more specifically about Jesus, but, but I wanna preach the whole picture. The whole picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel. And what John is doing for us in his own gospel as he writes it, he's piecing the puzzle together. He starts with, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Without him, everything that, that, nothing that is made was made. But through him, all things were created. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. He's, he's starting to show us the picture of Jesus. And then he goes into chapter number two. So into chapter number two contains two stories that I wanna look at today. Two stories in chapter number two, which if you don't see the whole picture, you'd go, oh, it's just two random stories. But actually John is saying something really specific here about Jesus through these two stories in John chapter number two. He's gonna help us see the whole picture. He wants us to see this Jesus who is God, full of grace and truth. And what we see in chapter two is how Jesus changed the game literally changed the whole game. Him showing up changed everything about how we relate to God. And so today, I wanna look at what happens when Jesus joins the party. That's the title of my message this morning, when Jesus joins the party. What happens when Jesus shows up? I'm gonna go to John chapter number two. If you have your Bibles here this morning, I wanna encourage you to open them up and uh, page over to John chapter number two. Take out your iPhones, your iPads, whatever you're using this morning. And I'm gonna read this first story and talk about it a little bit, and then I'm gonna go into the second one um, to show you how it clarifies even further. But John two verse one says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and goes, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She ignores Jesus' words and she's like, like a real mother. She's just like, mm, okay, just do what he says. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, it tells us in verse 11, is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first of the signs, it's telling us something about Jesus. We're gonna see what happens in our lives, in our world, in our church when Jesus joins the party. Let's go ahead and pray together and uh, then we'll get stuck into this. Jesus, we thank you so much this morning that you have joined this party, that right now you're here, you're speaking to hearts, you're setting us free, you're, you're opening our minds to receive more of you, our hearts and our spirits to, to receive more of your grace and more understanding. Father, I pray as you prayed for your disciples that the, that the, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that our, our minds would be open to the scriptures, that we would understand them, not theoretically, Lord God, not philosophically, Lord God, but by deep revelation of your spirit. Speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus. Speak to our hearts this morning. Reveal your goodness to us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. So Jesus gets invited to this wedding. And it seems like his mom was a part of the wedding planning. Uh, she had gone ahead. She was busy getting things sorted out. She obviously knew this family. It seems like it was a family that Jesus' mom knew, that Jesus probably knew himself, either family friends or, or a close uh, friend of theirs. And, and they go through. The mom is there. She's preparing. Uh, she's getting things done. And then Jesus comes along with his disciples, and they join the party. And a, a wedding feast back in those days wasn't just a one-day event or a one-afternoon event. It was actually, it would last sometimes up to a week. It was a, a very long festivity and, and celebration of, of marriage. And Jesus goes to this wedding. I mean, can we just take a moment to appreciate how incredible that is that this couple had the creator of heaven and earth, the fullness of God's glory, full of grace and truth, sitting, eating snacks at their wedding. I mean, Jesus is hanging out. He's sitting there, he's, he's laughing at the MC's jokes or pretending to like we all do and, uh, and, and, and he's listening to the speeches and he's, he's talking to people, he's, he's hanging out, he's meeting new people and, and he's just there, he's just, he's just present. The God who created all things is chilling at a wedding. I think sometimes we miss out a lot on life when we take ourselves too seriously. We take ourselves way too seriously. We think that we always have to portray this image of perfection which actually just becomes pretense. We think that we, we constantly have to be aware and concerned about how we're perceived and what people think about us and, and, and what we, we're doing or thinking or saying says about us and we can so often miss out on being present in the actual moment. Jesus could have had a lot on his mind. 
He's come to this earth. He's now at the beginning of his ministry. He's 30 years old. He's sitting there and he is about to enter into the three greatest years in human history. But he takes time to hang out at a wedding with some people. Because isn't that where life really happens? Hey, this is maybe a little bit of a side note this morning, but how much running around do we do? I've, I've got to go do that. I've got to go uh, buy the groceries. I've got to get to the office. I've got to go do that little bit of extra work. I've got to make sure that I, that I, that I tick all the boxes and I'm running around. And, and that's why church is sometimes inconvenient, but so important. Because life actually happens when you can sit down with some people and just be present. Just be present. I'm here. Yeah, I'm going to save the world in three, in three years. I'm going to die on the cross in three years. But right now, I want to just hang out with these people at my table and be present with them. And that's the heart of God. The heart of God is to be present with us. And we, when we understand this about God, it changes the way we relate to him. I remember going to a wedding that felt a lot like this. I've done a lot of weddings um, as a pastor. I've been to many weddings. And um, one of the best weddings I've done was when a friend of ours who is originally from Namibia went over skiing in Switzerland and met a guy in Switzerland. And then they flew out like half of Switzerland to Namibia and we did a wedding on the beach in Namibia, in this place in Namibia that's really cool. Um, it, uh, by cool, I mean it's got a cool sea breeze. It's not as hot as the rest of, of Namibia. Um, and it's called Swakopmund. And we're there on the, on the beach doing this wedding. And, uh, and afterwards, there was this beach bar over there. And, and we, we, we left straight from the beach, went into the beach bar. There was a spit bry. We were hanging out. And there was just nowhere to go. There's nowhere to rush to. We're in Namibia. You don't just rush anywhere in Namibia. You, you're there for the day. And I think that's the reason why I enjoyed it the most because similarly to Jesus, there was nowhere for me to, to be checking my watch for. I was just there with my wife, enjoying the company of these people. And we just hung out. And even though I was the pastor who preached the message, you know, sometimes if, once you've preached the message, it kind of changes the rest of the wedding for you because nobody speaks to you the same way after that again. But these guys, there was, I think, about 50 of them from Switzerland and Germany and, and some of them from Italy. They had come out. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes when people get a little bit drunk, they love to talk about Jesus. So I was just sitting at the bar at one point, and these guys, the drunker they're getting, the more counseling I end up doing. It was almost, they were almost queuing at one point. And I was having the deepest conversations with these guys that I had no idea whether they would even remember them the next morning. Like if I bumped into them the next morning, they'd be like, who are you? We've never spoken. But, uh, but this, I remember this one guy from Italy sitting with me and going, I don't know if I can trust my thoughts. <laughs> like how do I know if what I'm thinking is actually accurate? How do I trust my thoughts? And, you know, I just shared a little bit of the gospel with him and, and uh, saw him being encouraged through that. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's just hanging out. Sure, there were a couple of drunk people, and they, but they're there, and Jesus has an opportunity to have an impact on their lives. The attendance of Jesus shows us something very important. It shows us that Jesus cares deeply about your everyday life. We have this idea that Jesus stays behind at church on a Sunday. 
Like when we leave here, Jesus just hangs out here at Studio Blue. He's just sitting here in the corner going, man, I hope they come back next week because I'd really like to see them again. You know, that Jesus stays behind in the prayer room or in your worship session or, or you know, we, we put God first by saying a quick prayer in the morning, but then Jesus stays there in your bedroom or, or in your car, wherever you prayed the prayer, and then you go at the rest of your day alone. But what this verse shows us, what this chapter in the Bible shows us is that Jesus is actually present in your everyday life. And you know what good news that is? Because we need him present in our everyday lives. We need Jesus in our relationships. We need Jesus in our parenting. We need Jesus in our thought life. We need Jesus in our careers, in our hopes and in our dreams and in everything we take on in life. We need Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, I'll be there. I'll be there. You might think I have bigger things to do, but I'm gonna come and hang out in your life. I'm gonna cause you to become a temple of my Holy Spirit. I'm with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's present in our everyday lives. And he cares. Another thing that it shows us for married couples, if you're married here today or getting married soon, it shows you that Jesus actually loves marriage. And he cares about your marriage. Marriage is often difficult, it's often hard, it often produces many, many challenges, but it's one of those things that even though it's difficult, nothing else is quite as worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And our, our world has become increasingly cynical about marriage and about relationships and about commitment and about uh, sticking with one person for the rest of your life, loving them sacrificially as Jesus loved the church. But Jesus is saying through the scripture, I care about your marriage. And so if, if you're married here today, I want you to take courage that Jesus is with you in your marriage. He's a part of that marriage. He sits, he was there at the wedding. Jesus was there. And he hasn't left you from that time. So Jesus is at this wedding and then something catastrophic happens for a feast that is continuing for days. In fact, it could actually be seen as a dishonor towards the couple if you run out of wine. You don't run out of wine at a, out of wine at a wedding. And this happens, and so there's no wine to be found anywhere. Jesus' mom is involved with this wedding, the planning of it, and she realizes there is trouble, and she goes, you know what? An angel once spoke to me about my son and said he would be God with us and he would save his people. So I'm going to Jesus. I know, I've heard, I believe Jesus. There's no wine, Jesus. There's no wine. And Jesus is kind of like, "Eh, that's not exactly why I'm here. But the Holy Spirit had prepared it that through this instant, it would become a sign of what it is that Jesus came to do for us. God was gonna speak now through this lack of wine. He was gonna speak about what he sent his son to do. And this was the perfect opportunity. So the reason why Jesus then acts is not because his, his mom asked, but because by the leading of the Holy Spirit, God was going to speak to his people. God was going to do something. And his mom says, just whatever he tells you, just do it. He is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. He is full of the truth and the grace of God. If he says it, just do it. Just do it. 
It tells us something in verse 6 that as you read the story, it seems like it's just a detail that can easily be overlooked. But verse 6 says something so clear here. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification. These rites of purification were a part of the Jewish law and interpretation of the law as to how you would purify yourself in certain uh, instances and circumstances. And there were many of these Jewish rites. There were many of these legal requirements for you to be seen as clean as a person. If you committed a certain kind of sin, there was a a certain right for that. If you had, had done something you shouldn't have done or if you had even touched something you shouldn't have touched, there were different kinds of, of circumstances in which you would then need to go through a rite of purification. And the Jews actually believed that even just by going through your daily life, that you would become contaminated. Just being out amongst people in the world, that the external things would contaminate you. And they obviously felt this way because I don't know if you've ever looked at yourself and thought, how did I get here? You know how we sometimes disappoint ourselves and we do things that we never thought we would have done? I never thought I would be the kind of person who would do this or who would, who would fail in this way or who would make this kind of mistake. And it's so easy like the Jews did to attribute that to say, well, I must have been influenced and, and it must be because of all the external things that I've been surrounding myself with and I must purify myself more and more and more. There's a, a search here, there's a desire for purity. And so they went through the law. They thought that the law could purify them by observing these rites of purification, washing yourself before you ate. They stoned jars because the law is always written on stone. It's hard, it's, it's unrelenting, it's unforgiving, it's, it's harsh. So people, we even have, all people, even today, we're not so different from these guys at this wedding. We have this desire to cleanse ourselves or to purify ourselves or to fix ourselves. That's why New Year's resolutions uh, were created. That's why people, um, you know, like on the inside of my cupboard, I have a calendar so that I can set myself goals and I can mark it off how well I'm doing along the way because oftentimes we try in our own strength to fix ourselves, to make ourselves better. I've got to stop doing that now. It just takes a little bit more willpower to do it. And I was actually having a conversation with one of the couples here in our church at the end of the service last week. And and we were saying that trying to fix yourself is basically impossible because you're the one who's broken. I said to them, like a friend of mine, Mark Crossman, his words always come back to me where he says, the problem with self-help is that you're always being helped by someone who needs help. That's the problem. You're the one who's broken. It's like trying to take a bath in muddy water. It's like trying to wash yourself, but the cloth that you're using is dirty. It's like my kids when they eat chips with tomato sauce and that they, they, they feel there's a little bit of tomato sauce on their mouth, but they forget about how much tomato sauce is on their hands. And so when they wipe, eventually they just make it worse. There's just, now there's tomato sauce in their, in their ears and on their hair and, 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 and all over them. And they're thinking that they're cleaning themselves, but in trying to clean themselves, they're making themselves more dirty. And that's what we do. We think we have the ability to cleanse ourselves, but... 
The problem is deeper than that. Our problem with sin is deeper than what we do. And right at the end of this chapter, I'm not going to read the verses today, but right at the end of John chapter number two, you can go and read it at home. It says this, it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of man. Jesus knows the heart of man. And so he goes, you can wash your hands all that you want, but the problem isn't with your hands, it begins with your heart. The sinfulness that lies at the heart of us as humans, as humanity. So no matter what we do to fix ourselves we're, or to cleanse ourselves, we're never genuinely cleansed in our own strength. But that's what the law, the rites of purification, attempted to do. Let's see if we can follow enough rites to be cleansed. The difference on this occasion, though, the difference now is that Jesus is at the party. Jesus is at this party. And that's gonna make all the difference. That's what makes this party, us here as Anchor Church on a Sunday morning different from any other philosophy and self-help system out there. What makes us different is not that we figured out a system or a plan or a formula, but we have Jesus at this party. He's present. And he's gonna do something. And now we're gonna see what Jesus came to do. So he tells them to fill the jars and he tells them to fill it to the brim. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He came to fulfill the law on our behalf so that even though we are not able to fulfill it, in Christ, we are free from the law. Fill, fill it up to the brim. And then he tells them to draw the water out. And again, it's insignificant detail it seems, but in the Jewish rites of, of purification and all their different ceremonial laws, you never drew the water out. You would go to the water. You would wash yourself at the water. You would be baptized in the water. But in this instance, the water is drawn out. To me, that says that we didn't go to Jesus. We weren't seeking God but God came to us. He was drawn out of heaven to meet us in our sinfulness and in all of our own self-effort and self-righteousness. Jesus was drawn out and he meets with us where we're at. And as they draw this water out, they take it to the master of the feast and he tastes it and the water, a miracle had happened. The water which was supposed to be there for purification, it had now become wine and it tasted great. Very, very, very good wine. And that wine, as we know, Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he said that this cup is my blood. It represents what I am going to do for you on the cross as I will die for your sins. My blood will be shed for your sins. So I will take your judgment upon me. And this water becomes wine, representing the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1 verse 7 Again, this is 1 John. So this is his epistle that he writes later. This is not the gospel of John. 
the first letter, the first epistle of John, in chapter number one and verse seven, he says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What the water couldn't do, where you had to wash your hands every single time, you messed up every single time, you had gone out every single time you were about to eat, you had to make sacrifices year after year after year to be made right with God, as Hebrews tells us, it could never take away our sin, but now, once and for all, Jesus, through his blood, has washed us and cleansed us of all of our sin and all of our iniquity. He turned the water into wine the law into grace, unrighteousness or self-righteousness into the righteousness of God by faith in Christ Jesus. This is a big picture of what Jesus came to do. Now you see the picture. Now the puzzle piece is coming together. This is not just a, a, a party trick. This is not just Jesus saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip this party, I'm gonna blow it up, I'm gonna show everybody how good I am by turning water into wine. No, Jesus is saying something through the Spirit that's very, very powerful. I've come to set the captives free, to forgive people of their sin, to wash their iniquity away. And those Jewish rites were rites of purification. The problem is, is that even though you can do things on the outside that seem good, if your heart is evil, your actions aren't pure. And so here, Jesus brings the law back to purity. That's why he says, you've heard that it is said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't lust in your heart. What God wants is not for you just to stop doing this stuff on the outside. He wants your heart to be changed on the inside. He brings the law back to the purity. And he goes, the only way that you can receive a new heart is through my blood, is through my grace. He wants to renew us from the inside out. And then as I said, verse 11 John 2 verse 11 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. We spoke about glory last week, full of grace and truth. Here it is, Jesus is manifesting what it is that he came to do and what happens, the disciples see it and they believe. They believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. This was showing us the grace and the truth of Jesus and how the old system of following external rules to be right with God, trying to achieve purity in our own strength has been done away with. Jesus literally changed the game. He changed the way forever that any of us would relate to God. On which basis do we pray? On which basis do we worship? On which basis do we serve? On which basis do we love? Can I tell you the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross? We love God because he first loved us. Our faith is not in how well we can love God, but in how much God loves us. You're no longer right with God because you're religious. Religion doesn't make you right with God. You're right with God now because of your faith in Jesus. I love this quote by Robert Capon, who spoke about this. He said, Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, 
The good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. It is the bizarre proclamation that religion is over, period. If you thought you were coming to a, a program or a system, a 12-step plan to fix your life, no, no, you've come to a person. His name is Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. And he came to change the game. What Jesus did is that he created a new and a living way. A new covenant with his people. A new basis upon which we relate to God. Making all the old ways of how we used to approach God obsolete. And when I make bold statements like that, I do like to back them up with scripture. So Hebrews 8 in verse 12, it says, God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is a new covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is, or is ready to vanish away. The new one makes the first one obsolete. The new wine is better than the old wine. Who saves the best for last? Who keeps the best wine for the end of the party? Jesus does. They tried the law. They tried the rites of purification. They tried all their religious steps, but the new wine has arrived because Jesus is at the party. I don't know how many of you have, I'm sure we've all done it, uh, cut and paste things uh, when we're doing projects or you know, hopefully you haven't done it like in a university paper. Uh, if you have, don't raise your hand. But you know, we, we sometimes cut and paste things and sometimes we get into trouble for doing that. We cut and paste stuff and, and, we, and, it, and you know, it turns out that it's not our work or, or we don't fact check stuff before we post it online and we make this grand statement and everybody's like, hey, actually that's not true. Uh, or sometimes we cut and paste by applying a certain logic to a new task. We take a logic that we used for an old task and we just cut and paste it to the new one without really seeing whether it's applicable. Cut and paste gets us into trouble and that's often what Christians do with the laws of the Old Testament. They cut and paste them straight into the New Testament so that it sounds like you're following Jesus. It sounds like you're a Christian walking in the new covenant. It sounds like you understand your righteousness in God, but actually you're still serving in the old system. You've just cut and paste them to the new. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that we do not have the ability to follow the Old Testament laws. It's not what we're called to do. We're not called to look to the law. We're called to look to Jesus. And what happens is he changes our hearts and then without realizing it, without even looking at it, we begin to fulfill the law without looking at the law, simply by living in faith in Jesus. It starts with the heart change. Under the law, the first miracle of Moses, Moses is the one who received the law from God. The first miracle of Moses was to turn water in Egypt into blood. And that spoke of the judgment of God. 
because the judgment of God comes with the law. But under Jesus, his first miracle is to turn water into wine, the blood of Jesus, and that speaks of his grace. Judgment and grace. The day that the law was given, the Bible tells us that 3,000 people died. On the day that that the Spirit was poured out, 3,000 people were saved because the letter kills, the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. When Jesus died on the cross, he changed it all. He changed the game. So Paul warns again and again in the New Testament, don't cut and paste the Old Testament. Live according to your new covenant and relationship with God. In fact, Jesus actually says it in Matthew 9. He says it in this way. Again, he's talking about wine. Matthew 9, 17, he says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. You don't put the new wine into the old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. New wine, new covenant, my blood. Jesus says, don't put it into the old because what happens is when you begin to mix the law of the Old Testament with the New Testament of of God's grace and God's love and an understanding of how God works in us to fulfill his will, you ultimately lose it. When you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. When you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. Don't add, just believe, just follow. Don't put those, this fresh new wine into that old wine skin. So this is what happens at the wedding. I mean, what a great wedding. <laughs> what a great moment that Jesus just declares his glory His disciples see it, they go, man, yeah, we believe now. We have seen what God came to do. And then it goes into the second story that I wanna mention in in the time that we have left today. It goes into the second story. And now, knowing what we know about what happened at the wedding in Cana, we, we understand the significance of what Jesus is about to do. The very next story that John tells us, we see in John 2 and verse 13. And I'm gonna read these verses. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. I just wanna stop there for a moment. We can keep that scripture up there. Um, Just put it up. I don't have that one? Okay. But the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the Passover was the moment when in, in Egypt, God told Israel to take a lamb and to slaughter it and to put the blood on the doorposts so that death would pass over their homes. It was that moment of judgment of Egypt where God saved his people from the judgment by the blood of the lamb. And that's what Passover was. It was looking back at what happened in Egypt, but also looking forward prophetically as to what the Messiah was gonna do. And what the Jews at that time didn't realize is that that lamb was walking to celebrate that feast. Jesus joins the party. He shows up. 
In fact, you may have missed this when we looked at John chapter number two and verse one, but let me read the first verse of John two verse one again. It says, on the third day, let's stop there, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Three days and Jesus was raised from the dead. On the third day, he was raised. On the third day, Jesus changed the game. There was a wedding in Cana. So let's go on. John chapter number two and verse 13 says, the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. All these things that had to be bought for the sacrifice, that had to be, uh, that had to be exchanged and traded in order to uh, observe these rites of purification. And it says in verse 15, and making a whip of cords. Now this is Jesus changing the game. He makes a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now there's no nice way to overturn a table. It's not like Jesus said, just stand back guys, I just wanna do something real quick. Okay, thanks. That would be super passive aggressive of Jesus to do that. No, Jesus, he walks in there, he makes a whip of cords and he is chasing people out of the temple. He is driving all of the sacrifices out because the sacrifice has arrived. He chases the other sacrifices out. He turns over the tables and he says this to them. He looks at them. In verse 16, it says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is not a transaction. This is not an exchange. This is not, this is not something that needs to be bought. I've changed the game now. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. How often do we come to God ready to make transactions on a Sunday? Oh God, I'll bring my good works. God, I'll bring my, my great prayer life. God, I'll bring uh, you know, the, the, the things that I did well this week. I'll bring it to you. And then maybe, maybe if you see all those things, you can bless me. Jesus says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. This is not a place for you to come saying, God, can I buy some favor? God, can I buy some blessing? God, can I buy some righteousness? You cannot buy it. It's a free gift. Somebody once came to Peter offering to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter had some harsh words for him. You don't buy this. This is not for sale. This is something you receive by faith. Jesus changing the game. And then his disciples remembered that it was written about Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is passionate about this. I mean, he's passionate enough to make a whip of cords, to overturn tables. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see how this story now makes sense? He came to change the whole system. He's yet to declare that the law cannot save a person and Jesus is passionate about this because he wants people to connect with God. Remember Jesus was, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus is there to reconcile people to God. So he comes to the temple and he finds that instead of people being able to meet with God, they are met with laws, they are met with payments and fees and things that they have to do. They have to pay and perform to get to God. And Jesus says, a zeal for your house has consumed me. I'm going to chase this stuff out. I'm going to overturn these tables. I'm going to drive all the other sacrifices from the temple. And I'm going to declare, as he declares in the book of Mark, the same story, Jesus then calls the people together and he teaches them saying this. He says, my God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. A house of prayer. Prayer is to connect with God. It's to have intimacy with God. It's to uh, speak to God and be spoken to by God. And Jesus says, no more, no more paying and performing to get to God. I have joined the party. Now it's a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, not just for those in Israel, not just for the devout, but for all nations. Even here in South Africa, we're here because Jesus changed the game. We can come here on a Sunday and when we worship, we're not just going through a religious action. God is here. We're connecting with him because my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. All the nations of the world shall be able to connect with God. Regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, regardless of their socioeconomic standing, regardless of, 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 of who they are, by the grace of God, Jesus has flung the doors wide open and said, through me, all may enter. Through me by faith in what I have done. It tells us another thing in the book of Matthew. It says that in the same scene that the kids start running around in church. They start running around in the temple shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus brought life back to the temple, family back to the temple, grace back to the temple. And even the kids get to run around and shout out, Jesus, Jesus is here. The Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus turns the whole temple upside down, but actually he was turning it the right side up. He was bringing God's grace to the scene. And so the disciples, or not the disciples, the Jews, they're like, who is this guy? I mean, he waltzes into Jerusalem we heard he might have done something at a wedding you know, the other day. Now he waltzes into Jerusalem. He comes up to the temple, the most sacred place in all of Israel, and he starts turning over tables and teaching the people about God's will. And they go, what sign do you have? What authority do you have to, to say these things, to make these proclamations, to declare the will of God? Who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? Jesus answered them in verse 19. He said, destroy this temple 
and in three days I will raise it up. And this he spoke concerning his own body. Destroy this temple. You want to know what authority I have? Do you want to know what authority Jesus has above every other false God that is proclaimed out there? You know what his authority is? Three days. After three days, he was raised from the dead. You want a sign that I know what I'm talking about? You want a sign that I came to change the, the game? You want a sign that I'm truly the, truly the creator of heaven and earth? You want a sign that I have authority? I'll be raised on the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. And Jesus on that day turned the water into wine. He went from the law to a new covenant in the grace of God. That is his ultimate self-justification. I died on the cross and three days later, I was raised from the dead. Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised, all of our preaching is in vain. But we're confident that he was raised from the dead and that he is alive today and that he is in our lives, present just like he was. And he wants to take the water of your life, the things that you've been using to try and cleanse yourself, and he wants to turn it into wine by giving you the faith to believe that you are the righteousness of God by your faith in Christ Jesus. He wants you to see your identity in him, walk in the victory that you have in him. And that's the sign. So Jesus gets nailed to a cross. He's dead. He's so dead that a Roman soldier pierces his side with a spear and blood and water flows, the blood of Jesus being poured out. And, and scientifically, your own blood cells begin to separate. The white blood cells begin to separate once you have died, once a person has, has passed away. And so the only reason why blood and water flowed is because Jesus was already dead. He really was dead. And he's taken down from the cross He's put in a tomb. It's sealed up with Roman guards protecting it with their lives. But three days later, he's raised from the dead. And this, the disciples get to stand in a room with Jesus and they get to put their hands and their fingers into the holes where, he, where his hands and feet had been pierced. They get, to, they get to see Jesus in the flesh there before them. They get to experience just how alive he was. And John was one of those guys in that room going, let me see that hand. Let me, let me see that. That's it's Jesus. He's alive. And so when the disciples saw that three days later Jesus was raised, man, you can bet that they believed Everything that Jesus said he was going to do, he really did it. It really is true. He really changed the game when Jesus joined the party. I don't know about you, but I am incredibly grateful to God for what he did for me on the cross. That he took my sin, my punishment, my judgment, 
that I don't need to go through rites of purification. I just need to put my eyes on the cross and put my faith in Jesus. And that I get to live with God in that space, like Jesus hanging out at a wedding with me. He is with me in my life. I don't deserve his presence. I don't deserve him to make me a temple of his Holy Spirit. It has happened because of his grace and because of his love. Can we thank Jesus for that today? Come on, let's, let's pray together and just thank Jesus.